Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, your host for Stand to Reason. And last show, which for me was just an hour ago, I started with our deep bench, Alan Schliemann. And uh, we have more people on that deep bench. And uh, that's why I have Mr. Tim Barnett with me right now, a.k.a. Mr. B. Tim, this is a big day for you, isn't it, today? It is a big day. It's a long time coming. This is this day is two years in the making. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize that's how long it takes to really from front to from bottom to top to finish a book. There's so much work involved. And today's your official launch day. Now, of course, this is the day we're broadcasting, which is Tuesday, um, January 30th. This is the launch day of your new book that you co-authored with Elisa Childers. The Deconstruction of Christianity. Congratulations. Thank you, boss. It uh, feels really good. I, uh, <laughs> I'm super excited. I actually woke up a little bit nervous. Like, how is this book going to be received? Mm -hmm. And because, uh, you know, the work's done. Now it's out there in the world for people mm -hmm. to read for themselves. Um, so there's there's a lot of relief a lot of excitement, a little bit of nerves, too. Yeah. Well, you've been doing interviews for a while. That's built up the, I think, the momentum of the pre-sales. Uh, right now, you're at uh, at 424 on Amazon. Now, for people who are not familiar with how this number thing works, it's like it's like golf. The lower the score, the better, right? Yeah. And what this means says is that out of the entire universe of Amazon books— at the moment, which is in the millions, there are only 423 books in that entire universe that are selling more than yours right now, which means you're in a very good launching position. So you're blasting out of the gates with the deconstruction mm -hmm. of Christianity. So that's very good news at the moment. And uh, I expect that momentum is going to continue for quite a while. Well, that, that qualification is really important at the moment. So the key <laughs> is to keep the momentum going. And uh, yeah, it does feel really good to mm -hmm. get that kind of score kind of right out of the gate. And uh, we're hoping for the next few weeks and months that we keep rolling kind of in that, in that number and we sell. Um, but so far, so good. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of good reviews going up on Amazon. I can't help. I don't know if I'm supposed to read those, Greg. Maybe you'll give me some <laughs> uh, some wisdom on that. Well, um, there, are, you know. there, are, there are stars like one to five. Mm -hmm. Read the fives. Okay. 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 And by the way, just so you know, when somebody gives you a one star and there's no comments, that's a mm -hmm. troll. They're just making you look bad. They haven't read the yeah. book. They're just giving you one star. But right now you're at 4.8 with quite a few reviews already here your first day. And so uh, people are liking your book. Um, uh, some of them must have gotten it in advance to read it in advance. And I know that's part of the marketing that you've done. So uh, so good for you on that one. Tell us, it's, the title is The Deconstruction of Christianity. It's a topic we've been dealing with quite a bit and uh, it, it lately. And in fact, this isn't our book review kind of interview. We'll do that in the future. Um, but um, and I know your co-author is just unavailable at the moment. She's at Disneyland with her family. So uh, is that California or is that Florida? Do you know? You know what? I think she's it might be Nashville. Disney. Yeah, I think she's in, at Disney World. Okay. Um, I think. Uh, but yeah, she's 
She's taken a couple of days off, much deserved, yeah. and uh, and so yeah, we're, okay. we're not going to do well, that we'll interview have a, today. We'll have an interview with you um, in, in in the future, more depth. Just tell us very briefly about the deconstruction of uh, Christianity, and then we're going to talk about how people can get the book, and and then we'll move on with some other things here for, for sure. This sure. Well, a few years ago, um, we noticed. Uh, well, I noticed, and I started chatting with Elisa about this, was that people were using the word deconstruction um, to describe everything from, man, uh, leaving the faith altogether, but there were also Christians using it to mean, you know, I'm just questioning some secondary doctrine. Mm-hmm. And what we what we noticed was the church is really confused on this issue. Yeah. And uh, I, I thought, man, a book needs to be written to bring clarity to the confusion. Mm-hmm. And so I actually reached out to Elisa to write the book. I asked her in a text message, hey, are you going to write a book about deconstruction? Because I saw it as a kind of prequel to her book on progressive Christianity, because there That's is a, a link between it. those two. There is. Yeah, so then, so she said, no, I'm too busy writing a, a different book, you know, live your truth and other lies. And, uh, and that's when I said, hey, do you want to write one together? And she said, let's talk. And that mm-hmm. really got the ball rolling. Two years ago, we penned the contract uh, two years ago, January, and um, and here we are today. Yeah, well, and here we are. And here you're rolling at 424, which is fabulous. So um, we'll have another opportunity to talk more depth about the book. We'll give an hour to it, you know, and run through the details so people can see. Right now, of course, folks, you can get the book um, at Amazon. It's available. But... This month, and now, let's see, uh, when people are getting this, we'll actually be in February. So they will have received the mentoring letter that we send out. Some uh, I got my snail mail version already, but the digital one went out on the 1st, and uh, and that has uh, some details about your book. It's got uh, a section of a chapter, so uh, people can read that. And anyone who gives to Standard Reason this month, in the month of February, a gift of any size, you're going to get a free copy of Tim and Elisa's brand new book, Hot Off the Presses, The Deconstruction of Christianity. So I suggest that's the best way to go about it. You know, if you just can't wait, then hit that Amazon button and maybe the numbers will go lower, which are Mm -hmm. better for Tim. But either way, we want you to get a copy of this book so that you know how to deal with these challenges that are facing the church right now. I've mentioned before to you, Tim, you know, my concern now is not so much the, uh, you know, for my concern is not so much for the world as it is for the church and protecting them from the world without and also, you know, the wolves within. And there are a lot of wolves. And you talk about that. And this book is to protect the sheep from the wolves and the world. And so thank you for your effort and uh, your great contribution and for this great launch day and for 424. Take a picture. Take a screenshot of that number. You know, save it, okay? <laughs> I, I will. And Greg, I appreciate you having yeah, I appreciate you having me on here and doing a little celebration. I wish we could like have a little cake or cupcake or something that we could just enjoy together, right? If we would have planned this better, we could have yeah. both taken a big bite out of a cupcake. Well, or something. I could I could light a candle and you could blow it out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, do have celebrate with your wife and your kids yep. tonight and enjoy it. And of course, a lot of work ahead of you as you promote the book. But this is the most fun part. People say, "Do you like writing?" To me. I said, mm, I like having written, <laughs> and uh, that's where you happen to be with this work. So congratulations, Tim. Appreciate it, boss. All right. Bye-bye now. Tim Barnett, a.k.a. Mr. B, 
um, and his brand new book, The Deconstruction of Christianity. Once again, you can get that on Amazon uh, if you wait uh, just a little bit. And our store. Okay, good. Thank you, Amy. So, str.org, and you can order it there at the store. And the uh, the Bearded Beast here looking at me through the window is one who gets that stuff on the road to you. And uh, and if you, you'll get a free copy, actually, any gift, a gift of any size, uh, side. <laughs> Wait. Yeah, a gift of any size. <laughs> oh, in the month of February. In response to our appeal with the mentoring letter, we'll get you a copy of the deconstruction of Christianity. Okay. Now, with that in mind, we're going to go to a caller who's been very faithfully waiting on the phone for, like, forever. Ramey in Indiana. Ramey, thank you for all of your amazing patience. Oh, you're welcome. I, I, it's great to hear uh, about some of these successes in your publishing with uh, Tim Barnett. Yeah, that's uh, really great. And uh, we're just uh, trusting and praying that the numbers stay up, because the numbers staying up means that more people are being influenced by the hard work that uh, Tim and Elisa have put into that work. So we're uh, yeah. we're really thrilled about that. And I actually have a copy of the book in my hands no right kidding. now. It came today. Oh, wait. Yeah. How, how did, did, from Amazon? No, from you all. Oh, okay. And my wife uh, did send in a gift, and we got a couple of copies. So, oh my goodness! Yeah. All right. Well, we're, that means the bearded beast is on the ball here. That's great. I guess so. <laughs> so, Ramy, did you forget what your question is after all this time uh, on hold? I, I I still remember what it is. I've got it written down in front of me, so I won't forget. Oh. All right, good. Um, so here's the thing: I'm, I'm an outpost leader, outpost oh, director great. at my church. And Great. so I've called actually a couple of times before because in that capacity, there's some of the participants ask questions that kind of get me to thinking. And I think, hmm, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should ask Greg. Okay. <laughs> so, so uh, and that's one of these times that uh, in a recent session, we had a question come up. One of the participants asked uh, that his daughter brought up to him. Uh-huh. And he wasn't sure how to respond. It kind of stumped him. So I thought, that's a really tough question. I should ask Greg. Okay. And uh, I understand from Amy that you may have addressed something like this question before on STR Ask, maybe. But here's here's what it's about. Um, and I'm paraphrasing this as best I can remember. Mm -hmm. It's about people who want to change their gender, uh, change their sex with uh, operation and... Uh, her question to her dad was, why couldn't God have made a mistake in in assigning that person sex at birth, and why wouldn't it be okay to correct that by surgery, just like we do with someone who has, say, a cleft palate, who was born with that condition that needed mm -hmm. to be corrected, and doctors do these kind of corrective surgeries all the time for mm -hmm. those conditions. Why wouldn't it be acceptable to do that with sex? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a good question. And how old is your daughter who asked this question? Just out of curiosity. Well, it's, it's, it's not my daughter. It's my friend's daughter. Okay. I think she's about 20-ish or so. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, it's interesting the way the question started. And, I mean, the way you characterize it, maybe this isn't quite the way she characterized it, but maybe this is kind of what it, what's in her mind. Maybe God made a mistake. And then mm -hmm. made the comparison with cleft palate. Now, cleft palate is a congenital problem where the upper lip is 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 split because the whole palate 
is split. The upper part, the teeth and everything is, there's just like a, like a, like a, a split there. I don't know how else to, to, to describe it. And it's very unsightly. Um, uh, it, you, people might have seen commercials about giving money to organizations who do reparative therapy here and that can be fixed. It's more prevalent in third world countries where the medical care is not as available. And that's why people have to ma- raise funds to help these kids out. And uh, it's certainly possible to repair a cleft palate. In fact, I can think of famous actors that have the scars that are evidence of a cleft palate that's been repaired. So we don't see this very often in the States. But we, but it, it does occur um, in third world countries. It, it seems to me, especially in India, when I see examples of this, they're kids from India. Um, and um, and so there, the comparison is between the anomaly, we'll just call it an anomaly right now, of gender dysphoria and therefore compels a person to want to change their sex surgically, and the anomaly of cleft palate, which which then requires a surgical change to correct it, okay? It's not a parallel, though, and I there are a couple of reasons why this seems very obvious to me. First of all, um, uh, the cleft palate is a physical anomaly that it's obvious to see is not the way it's supposed to be. The mouth is supposed to be a certain way, the way it is with people who don't have cleft palate. And now we have this unusual pathology of sorts where the palate is disfigured from birth. And therefore, the disfigurement is being repaired with surgery. So what is being done is the surgery is being applied to restore normalcy to that individual who was born with an abnormal condition. And the reason there are abnormal conditions generally, this it's characterized this way, is because of the fall. We don't live in a perfect world anymore. We live in a fallen world, and, a, and this fallenness has ramifications for the physical realm. And we see this all over, uh, this characterizations of this in Romans 8, the broader theological um, characterization, but we can see ramifications. It's a fallen world, and so, as I put it, it's a broken world that produces broken people and broken circumstances, okay? And that's being repaired. Now, I think gender dysphoria is part of the brokenness, all right? But there's nothing wrong in gender dysphoria with the person's body. On this view, on comparing gender dysphoria and the desire to then become transgendered or transsexual, I guess more accurately, with the surgery, um, the, 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 you're not repairing a broken body. What you're doing is trying to conform a healthy body to a broken mind. The fact is that sex change operations are not possible. It is not possible to change your sex. It is part of who you are. All you can do is change your appearance. But the appearance change doesn't change the sex. And changing the appearance when surgery is involved is tantamount to sexual mutilation. 
You take something good and you destroy it for the good thing that it is to make it look like something else that doesn't serve that other purpose. You destroy the thing that's good and you replace it with something that's bad, functionally bad. I'm not even using moral terms there. I'm just trying to show why these two things are worlds apart. And you also have this other difficulty, as I touched base on, I mentioned first, is that the way the question was asked is, what if God made a mistake? I don't know how to even countenance such a notion. I mean, even if if you're not a Christian, the notion of God entails the idea that he's above those kinds of mistakes. The notion of the kind of God that Christianity talks about, the perfect, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, all-good beings, the only one like that, how is it that he makes a mistake? So I I think that way of looking at it is is a mistake. (laughs) There's no mistakes by God. That doesn't mean that God made the person with the cleft palate or made the person with the gender dysphoria. The cleft palate was a result of an aberration that after the fall physically, and the gender dysphoria is something that happened after, psychologically, after that person was born. There's other kinds of influence, developmental influences, that uh, that result in gender dysphoria. So I don't know why anybody would say, be inclined to say, well, God caused this thing, and when he caused it, he made a mistake. Well, one of the things that uh, this uh, person's daughter may have uh, kind of rejoined with is the the idea that, as you put it, and as I agree, we live in a fallen world, so when Christians say this, that, why couldn't it apply to the fallenness being manifested as being the wrong sex, you know, having physically the wrong sex? Well, because... I don't, yes, but I don't, I don't see, that's, that's like seeing, um, see that, uh, that flower over there? Mm-hmm. That flower is somehow broken and false. Oh, wait, it looks mm-hmm. just fine. Yeah, because I don't like the color. Because I don't like mm-hmm. the color then why did God make it the wrong color? I mean, it's maybe a, a cheesy <laughs> parallel, but there, there's something to it. Um, the, the presumption is that, that it's, it's the fallen world that caused the wrong body. Notice what's the way this is being characterized. I don't think the body is wrong. I think that the mind is wrong. Yeah. To attribute gender dysphoria to fallenness, I think, is sound. But you don't attribute it to the body, which looks just fine. You attribute it to the mind that is not understanding itself as being properly associated with that particular body. So, uh, yeah, what else? Yeah, and I agree that it's uh, there's a, in the case of the cleft palate, you're fixing something, as you pointed out, that is not functioning the way it's supposed to function. It's Correct. less functional than what it should be. And you're helping a person regain the function that, if you look around and compare to, to all the people who are able to do well with their 
the palettes they have. Right, You're right. trying to, to make it more like that. Actually, you know, it's even, in a sense, this it's, a, it's stronger than that point. Um, it's not just to make everybody look the same, but and this is what you're getting at, I know, but I just want to put it in a little different way. It's okay. so that the mouth, you don't have to look at anybody else in a certain sense to know, wait, this isn't working right. Yeah. You know, there shouldn't be a big hole in the top of my mouth or a cut in my, my a cleft there in my palate and then in my lip. That's just not right. Now, you could obviously you can confirm that by looking around, but the idea is to make it right not just make it like everybody else. What everybody else helps you to see is the way it's supposed to be to fulfill the purpose that God designed human bodies uh, to fulfill. And so, um, yeah, but we, we kind of I've just made a further refinement of that same point that you were making. And uh, that's what we're after. It's the body's fine in the case of transgender. It's the mind that's that's not fitting Let's let me put it this way. Everybody agrees there's a problem. <laughs> when a when a person says I'm a woman in a man's body, that's a misfit. All right. Now the question is, what's wrong? Is the body wrong or is the thinking wrong? Yeah. Now nobody's gonna you can't take exception. You look at the body. Apart from the self identification of the person who's reporting about their mind, you look at the body, the body's this is fine. It's all functioning the way it's supposed to function for that gender, for that sex, if you will. But uh, so it's not the body, but it's the mind that doesn't fit. So the mind is not healthy if the mental attitude doesn't fit the physical body. Incidentally, this is not 25 years ago. This would not have been controversial. What has changed? Politics has changed. Not common sense. Yeah. So that's... Well, I agree. And I think, too, that uh, the uh, in the case of the sex change operation, you're actually going from something, as you pointed out, that's already functioning or functional right. the way it's supposed to be is, is intact and, and is uh, the way it was designed to something that's less functional, Yeah, as I understand. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. It certainly can't function as per the sex that the person actually is. So mm-hmm. if you if you have a male and you castrate the male, he doesn't become a female. He beca- he right. becomes a castrated male. Right. So uh yeah. and so whatever's left can't function the way a genuine female organ functions. That man isn't going to have children. He has no uterus. All right. You can form a kind of a vagina, but that's that's doesn't that's not a real vagina. He's not a real woman. And so it doesn't function. You you can't just transfer. You're right. It you, you take something that works properly and you make it into something that doesn't work. Um and and that ought to be it just strikes me as the obvious <clears throat> distinction between that and cleft palate. And that that's to me is this the significant here, Ramey, and I'm glad you called. That people are struggling with this means that the culture has robbed them to a great degree of their common sense regarding these issues. And I'm not trying to disparage the gal who raised the question. 
I'm just showing that the that somebody raised the, raises a question like this is an indication of the influence of the culture on our thinking and well, uh, and our kind of common sense about these issues. And I think it's even apparently affected the certain members of the medical community who oh. would yeah. violate their oath to do no harm, and here they are taking a perfectly functional body and changing it so that it's less functional. Yeah. It just it baffles me. It baffles me, too, and it's I want to say it's all politics, but there's certainly— a, and when I say politics, I don't mean like conservative versus liberal or Democrat versus Republican. I mean, these are social pressures that uh, are, are being forced upon people. And, uh, and there's demagoguery, there's manipulation, there's all kinds of – then there's financial incentives for people to work a certain way. There are punishments for those people who disagree. I mean, there's all of this stuff going on that ought to have nothing at all to do with these kinds of decisions. Doc, the medical profession should be completely above that in order to do good medicine. But, you, I mean, it's – Every day, I think it can't get any crazier, and then it does. It gets even crazier. So um, maybe you know we're reaching a point where uh, of of critical mass, and this whole house of cards is going to come tumbling down. I hope so. Some think that that may be about to happen, and we're in an election cycle now where the the will of the public might be made known in a in the kind of way where they're saying, we don't want any more of this nonsense. And by the way, if it doesn't happen politically, it's going to happen legally. Because there's a lot of people who are getting sex change operations, so-called. And a few years later, they're going, OMG, what did I do? Um, I was abused. I was a minor. And these adults took advantage of me. And there's going to be lawsuits galore. And once the lawsuits start falling, that's going to be the end of this nonsense. We'll see. But that's a that's my prediction. It's already happening somewhat in the, the UK. We'll see how 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 that plays out here. But uh, yeah. by hook or by crook, if not by common sense, then by the law, just yeah. by the the, the uh, punitive effect of civil suits. Yeah. Okay. Was that worth waiting for, Ray? Yeah, I appreciate your weighing in on this, and uh, I'll have my friend listen to this part of the podcast, All right. and he can uh, hopefully get something for, uh, All right, that's out great. of it to ask his or to talk to his daughter. About. Okay, well, I appreciate your payment, your patience, Ramy. You're welcome. All right, all the best to you. You too. Take care. Bye. bye. All right, we uh, let's take a break. How about that? And then we'll come back for more on Stand to Reason. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. 
In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. All of this discussion we've been having in the last few weeks about uh, same-sex marriage and transgenders in weddings and uh, what's appropriate and what isn't appropriate for Christians has raised other questions, and we've been getting some, <clears throat> excuse me, some uh, some responses on our social media about the distinction between gay and trans weddings and uh, weddings between male and female unbelievers and mixed-faith weddings and marriages between divorced individuals. Um, and so maybe I'll say a few things about that. The distinction that I've tried to make here, and it's a little bit um, sticky because the terminology hasn't matured yet regarding these issues, but is one between a same-sex wedding and a what might be called a trans wedding, that is, a wedding where one individual is trans, all right? Now, remember, if an individual is trans, if it's a trans male, that means they are actually physically a female living as a male. Not having surgery, that's transsexual, but transgender is one that is posturing as the opposite sex from what they are physically. So in a, in a same-sex wedding, you have two members of the same sex that are being joined together, okay? In a trans wedding, you may have two members of the same sex that one or the other is trans. Um, uh, that is, you could have two men being married to each other, and one is wearing a dress. Let's put it that way. The trans female is wearing a dress, a gown. And uh, there you have a same-sex wedding. But if you have a trans man and a reg and a uh a one who's got male sexuality a cisgendered man uh identifies as male and is male then you actually have uh a woman and a man being married together so that would be another option or another alternative for a so-called trans wedding and so so we have 
Alan weighed in on that in the last show, and I've talked about it as well. And neither of these kinds of weddings are real weddings. They aren't the kind of thing that God is promoting, although Amy would make the distinction, if it's a male and a female, then it's a real wedding, but maybe uh, pursued under the wrong kinds of pretenses when one is trans. All right. But anyway, I'm making that distinction. We already weighed in on whether we thought it was okay to um, do to participate in that kind of wedding. No, it's not. We'd be celebrating something we can't justifiably celebrate. Now, Robbie Lashua mentioned a couple of weeks ago in our group discussion on our team that he, as a as a minister, has done weddings, but he would never do a wedding with trans people or with the same-sex marriage. And his point was, if I can't, in good conscience, do the wedding, I probably shouldn't attend the wedding. Now, this same principle would apply also um, with with uh, mixed faith weddings, if what is in view here is a Christian marrying a non-Christian, and the reason that's distinctive is because the Scripture tells us specifically, do not be unequally yoked with non-believers. In other words, don't be yoked together in an intimate relationship. The picture there is a cattle with a yoke over the two of their shoulders, and they're pulling together with someone who's going to be pulling in a different direction. That makes no sense. And actually, the language in Second Corinthians, I don't know, five-ish, right in there somewhere, is much more um, aggressive. It says, what has darkness in, uh, in, in similarity to light? You know, what, what do they have in, in common? They don't. They're totally contrasted. So if if there is a believer marrying a non-believer, and this is clear that they're both non-believer, that one is the believer and one is the non-believer, then this is not a union that a a, a, a faithful Christian minister can officiate in, and therefore, it seems, a faithful Christian cannot attend, okay? Because they'd be celebrating something that God says should not happen. Now, what if they're two non-believers? Well, it doesn't matter. As long as one's a male and one's a female, um, there's nothing wrong with going to that wedding. There's nothing suspect about the nature of that union. It just turns out that they're not Christians. All right. Um, What about uh, mixed-faith weddings that are not Christian? What about if a Muslim marries a Hindu? Well, I don't see why you wouldn't be able to attend that either. So what about if a—because it's not like a wrong pairing. It may be—it may not be wise, okay? I mean, that's another issue. Uh, when, when you are looking for a lifelong partner, you do not want diversity. The less diversity, the better. Some diversity in small things, that's fun. But diversity in big things, that's trouble. Okay, you don't want a lot of diversity. So if you're a devout Hindu and you are interested in marrying a devout Buddhist, well, in Christian terms, that's not wrong, according to Christian theology. But it may be not smart, because in an important thing, you're going in two different directions. All right. Now, what about divorced individuals? Now, this is a little bit more tricky. 
But the principle, I think, is a, is fairly easy. The principle is, <clears throat> if the person who's getting divorced is remarriageable according to scriptural standards, then there's no wrong—if it's okay for them to be remarried, then it's okay for you to go to the wedding. If it's not okay for them to be remarried, in other words, if they didn't get the divorce for a biblical reason, and I happen to think that the biblical or legitimate reasons are are, are a little bit are broader than the kinds of specifics that we see in Scripture, like uh, adultery on the one hand or abandonment on the other. We see that in Jesus' teaching. And then also in Paul in Romans eight, or rather First Corinthians eight, I think there are some more to be discussed about other extreme situations. And the person who does such a good job in that has written a book on divorce and remarriage. His name is Wayne Grudem. It's a smallish book, but he goes into some detail about the biblical language that indicates there's some other severe circumstances in which um, a, a person is no longer obliged to be married because the the marriage trust has been severed, assaulted, however you want to characterize it, so egregiously that there's no obligation to stay married. Now, you'll have to read his book to see his reasons. I'm just saying. Whatever the category of legitimate divorce, if the divorce is legitimate before God, then remarriage is legitimate. And if remarriage is legitimate, then there's nothing wrong with going to the wedding. So we're trying to be consistent across the board here. If the marriage is appropriate before God, then that's something we can celebrate, and it seems to cover all the bases. Now, uh, just a word on Robbie's um, uh, Robbie's advice: If I couldn't marry them, then I wouldn't shouldn't be I, I wouldn't go to the go to the ceremony and. John Noyes on our team had some observations about that. He said, well, I've, I've gone to lots of weddings, okay, that uh, that I wouldn't perform. I've gone to a Hindu met, uh, wedding and uh, really had a great time with these friends of his. Um, and I, I wouldn't perform a Hindu wedding. and uh, But going to that wasn't a moral compromise, all right? Um uh, he's gone to a wedding of an atheist and his wife. Now, he wouldn't marry them because, in John's mind, he would be participating in creating a union before God with people who didn't even believe there was a God. So there's no real solemnizing in their mind the process. And so there are some exceptions to the rule that Ravi Lashua offered, and John just pointed them out. Sometimes, for obvious reasons— that are not related to the morality of the ceremony, a Christian minister may not do the marriage, but uh, could still attend. But I think, in general, that's a pretty good guideline that Robbie gave, all right? So now, with that in mind, let's, um, let's going to go to some open mic calls, the ones that you, you call in, either directly by dialing 857-DIAL-STR or 857 857- Three four two five seven eight seven, or by going to the website, the homepage str.org, and under podcasts where it says live broadcasts, so you can follow the prompts there and leave your questions. And this question is coming from Katie. 
And uh, from MT, where, where is that? Montana? MT is Montana. All right. So let's, uh, this is Katie's or Catherine's question about when Jesus was an infant. She sent a couple of them in. So let's try to deal with that one. Mr. Beast. Hey, Greg. It's Katie from Montana again. I had the thought that I should probably start calling you Mr. Kokel like everybody else, but I just call you Greg as if I actually know you. Um, <laughs> but today my question is about Jesus, um, specifically his humanity as a fetus and an infant and young child. Um, so when he was in those developmental stages of his humanity, was his complete existence and the fullness of the second person of the Trinity only existent as an, a fetus or as an infant? And was he limited to only the knowledge and wisdom and understanding that a fetus and infant and toddler would have? Or was there some part of him whether it's his mind or I want to say spirit, but that would be the Holy Spirit. So I'm just confused. Was there mm -hmm. any part of Jesus that when he was hu humanly a fetus still existed outside of just the limitations of a fetus and, or an infant, or was he fully and completely only existent in those times as the human fetus and the capacities and limitations that come with that each developmental stage, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Hopefully this question makes sense. Thank you. <laughs> it does make sense. And a lot of people have uh, asked this question, um, Katie. And by the way, you can call me, you know, Greg is fine. Uh, the only one who calls me Mr. Coco really is Cade. God bless his heart, and uh, my daughter's friends when they come over, because they're still teenagers, you know, and I want them to still look up to me as Mr. Kogel. But nevertheless, most people, it's just first name basis, so it's fine for you to call me that. Um, this question has to do with the relationship of Jesus' uh, human nature to his divine nature. Now, there is a there is a formula here called the Chalcedonian formula from the Council of Chalcedon, and there's a creed also associated with that. And the Chalcedonian formula also that can be depicted in a diagram of a square with each part on each side of the square represents orthodoxy, okay? The, um, the Chalcedonian formula is Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. Now, that's not 200%. People get really confused about that. I'm a 100% a man and 100% a cocal. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm 200%. I have all of what's required to make me a male, and I am all that's required to make me a cocal. And I have all that's required to make me the president of Stand to Reason. And I have all that's required to make me the owner of my Ford F-150 out in the parking lot. So I got all kinds of 100% that apply to me. The key here is that we don't diminish Jesus' humanity, nor do we diminish his deity. He had the full nature of God, 
and he had the full nature of man, 100%. All that is essential to divinity was characteristic of Jesus, the God-man, and everything that was that is essential to humanity is characteristic of Jesus, the God-man. Okay, that's actually two sides of the Chalcedonian square. He is one per. He is a. He is a fully God and fully man. Okay, those on either side of the square. The opposite side, the alternate sides are fully God and fully man. I'm sorry, fully God, fully man, and one person, but two natures. Fully God, fully man, one person, two natures. Fully God, fully man, one person, two natures. Okay? Now, there's a little repetition in there. I get that. If he's fully God and he's fully man, that means he's two natures. But they say two natures in order to contrast it to one person. And this is where the confusion comes in, because if he's one person with two natures, what is that person? Well, that person is the second person of the Trinity. It is the second person who came down and took on a human nature, bringing his second person qualities and his divine nature with him to add to him the human nature. Now, those are all the technically accurate ways of characterizing Jesus. Fully God, fully man, one person, two natures. But what does that actually look like for the man, the God-man, Jesus, who is conceived in the womb of Mary as a fetus and develops and then becomes the child, the infant, then the child, then the adolescent, then the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's hard to figure out. Now, we do know from Luke chapter 1 that when John the Baptist was a fetus and John the Baptist was in the presence of the 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 zygote, essentially, or the, you know, the newly conceived Jesus inside of Mary, that John the Baptist leapt with joy, having been filled with the Holy Spirit. We know that from what the text says. When, when they were in close proximity from each other, with each other, the very first time, the prophet in the womb of Elizabeth leapt with joy in the presence of the Messiah, the Son of God, in the womb of Mary. Now, this has ramifications, of course, for the question of abortion, if you take the biblical text seriously. Uh, uh, and, I mean, to me, the, the, the point is very straightforward. I developed this um, in the abortion chapter in the book Street Smarts. So, because this is a line of, of pro-life thinking and argumentation that can be offered to a Christian who takes the Bible seriously. You can't be pro-abortion if you understand properly what Luke has just described there. Excuse me, there in the first chapter of Luke. All right. So um, that tells you something, though, about, hmm, about what was going on very early, at least with John the Baptist. All right filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. But it doesn't mean John the Baptist knew a whole lot, and certainly Jesus didn't know a lot. Um, There is a developmental element, and this is true even with our own souls, where the body develops so that the soul inside, with its native capacities, can express those capacities through the body when the body has developed 
enough for those capacities to be manifest. So human beings have a capacity to speak, um, to speak language. And as they grow, they learn the language and they speak the language. But when they're infants, they don't know the language because their physical bodies, their brains and their mouths and whatever have not developed adequately to be able to fulfill the capacities that the soul will use the developed body to fulfill. All right? So um, as a result, it says there in Luke chapter 2, actually, and Jesus, verse 52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Okay, that means he grew up physically, that's the stature, but he increased in wisdom. That means his knowledge began to increase as his physical body was capable of receiving that. Now, part of your question, um, Katie, was, uh, was there part of him that existed outside the limit, limitations of being an infant? And the answer to that is, of course, and that was his divine nature, which was not limited by his physical body. But part of the mystery of the Incarnation is now you have a divine nature in the second person of the Trinity united with a genuine physical body and brain. And therefore, that that union is going to influence the expression of the capacities that the invisible um, nature of God had. Um, just like if you, well, the infant that I was talking about has the capacity to speak, or maybe if you had a brain injury and you you then no longer could speak, my my mom had a stroke, and when she had a stroke, it was on one. It affected her peripheral vision on one side. Both of her eyes had obstructed peripheral vision on the left. That was the nature of the stroke. So now, because of a physical problem, she lost certain of her capacities or capabilities. All right, she was still herself, but the body was no longer capable of expressing expressing or functioning in that fashion. All right. So, um, I mean, that's just an analog. It, it, that Actually, it's not an analog. It tells you a little bit about the interaction of the soul with the body. The, bo- the soul is limited while it's in the body by the body it's in to express its capacities. And, and that seems to be a pretty straightforward way to understand what was going on as Jesus developed— he had a he had a uh, he had a he had a he had a, a individual person one person but he had two separate natures okay and again how you slice and dice that is is actually the job of philosophers and theologians it's not my strength but the text does say that he grew he kept increasing in wisdom stature and in favor with God and man. God favored him. Men favored him. But as time went on, that favor increased because his capacities uh, were more uh, uh, able to be lived out as the body grew in stature. Okay. Now, uh, the final question this raises, 
And this, to me, is the most tricky question. When did Jesus realize that he was the incarnate Son of God, that he was part of a grand plan that God had ordained that, that in which he would be the Savior of the world as a self-sacrifice? Um, I think in William Lane Craig's book, and this might be the book uh, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview that he wrote with J.P. Moreland, might be that book, and it might be a different one that maybe Reasonable Faith. I'm not sure. But in one of those books, he does talk about Jesus, the development of Jesus' self-awareness. And so he has something something to say about that, and I read it, <laughs> but I don't remember what he said, <laughs> which means I can't tell you much. Amy, do you know this about—did Bill Craig talk about Jesus' self-awareness in his book, Reasonable Faith? Isn't there a section that she, she doesn't remember either? We're both senile, so we're remembering less and less of what we've used to know. Um, so that's just the way that works. But it is, it, it is as, I, as I recall, even in Bill's case, it's a matter—there's a highly speculative element to it. How does that actually work? And uh, Jesus was unique. He was the only God-man. He was the, you know, one one person, two natures, fully God, fully man. Chalcedonian formula, right? Chalcedonian box. And there was nobody like him. And this raises questions, like you've raised, Katie, um, about his knowledge and his wisdom. And was it limited, and did it grow as the infant grew into a, a young boy and then an adolescent? And I guess the, the simple answer to that question is yes. His knowledge did grow. His wisdom did grow. We have attestation to that here in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Yet, um, that, that still doesn't give us a very full picture of what's going on inside the mind of Jesus. Um, orthodoxy said Jesus had only one will. He didn't have He's a, he didn't have two wills, he had one will. <laughs> There's debates about that over the history of the Church, and even today probably some people might have a different point of view, and maybe two minds or something like that. And it's—Jesus—can it's, it's, Jesus, <laughs> can I say this? Jesus is a weirdo. He's an odd one. Uh, th- thankfully, he is like us in all the ways that matter. He was one of us. So all the ways that matter, being a full human and walking this earth the way we walked it, he gets it, all right? He understands what it's, what it's like to be human, and what he understands is not just what it's like to be human, but he understands all—it's not just the likeness of being human, but all the reality of, of human—being a human in a fallen world. And, and actually, he more than anyone— Whatever insight he has in virtue of his divine nature, which certainly he had, and this becomes clearer in details that we see there in the Gospels and when he's talking and reflecting and, and he's divining what people are saying and what they're thinking and all that, um, he, he, he's also a really smart guy. <laughs> and uh, and, and, and he, he, he's—both of those things are working together, and, and I don't know exactly where the line is drawn. But nevertheless, <clears throat> he— understood 
the frailty of life. He was victimized by a fallen world and by fallen people. Maybe victimized isn't the right word. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I give it of my own accord. But you know what I mean. He he felt the pain of fallen people and living in a fallen world. And therefore, he can identify with us. We can go to him as someone who knows. He calls us his friends because he can stand beside us and he can walk with us because he's been there. But he's not just a friend. He's not merely a peer. He's a friend, but he's also our Lord. He's our Savior, but he's also our King. And so there's a mixture of things going on here. How do we parse out exactly how this stuff all worked out from the womb until, what, adolescence? Boy, that's hard to tell. By the time he's 12, he pretty much had had it figured out. I think that's obvious from the conversations he was having at the temple after he was separated from his family for a number of days there. People were wowed by his wisdom, all right? I must be about my father's business. He got it by then. How it came along that way, that's kind of a mystery. Anyway, I hope this helps. Katie, it's the best I can do. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye now.